Sermon text this morning is Exodus chapter 3. I'm actually going to start in chapter 2, verse 23. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of their bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, but the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw, he turned aside to look. God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and have come to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel have come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Almighty Father in heaven, we come this day to hear your word, to learn more about you, to grow and mature as Christian people. We ask, Father in heaven, that you would help us to understand you better. May the words of all my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Amen. So Pastor Garner and I are doing a 12-part series on what we believe as a church about certain specific doctrines, uh, teachings. And there's numerous reasons for this. One is that we have a lot of new people. A lot of people have shown up in the last couple of years, may not understand everything we believe, um, what we think about certain doctrines. Some of you have been here for a while, may not remember, may have forgotten. I know that never happens. We never forget anything that we're ever taught, but you may have forgotten some of these things. And then, of course, people in the future, our hope is that these sermons will be sort of collected in a spot. And if someone's like, well, what do they think about baptism? Pastor Garner can say, well, go watch this sermon and learn what we think about baptism. And we're covering lots of doctrines in this time frame, the family, the church, baptism, the Lord's Supper. Next week, Pastor Garner is going to preach on the Bible, what we believe about the Bible. This morning, I got a very small, narrow topic that I should be able to cover in a very brief period of time, and that is, what do we believe about God? And um, I was very grateful for Pastor Garner giving me such a small thing to talk about this morning. The doctrine of God or what we believe about God is one of the most immense subjects man can study. Even when you have been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, you will still not know everything there is to know about God. Job, in Job 26, has this great phrase that I love. I may have even mentioned it from the pulpit once already. It's one of my favorite verses. Job talks all about God, and at the very end he says, this is but a whisper of his ways. We have just come to the edge. You think about Job. Job is this great book about the doctrine of God, and Job says, no, this is just a whisper. This is just the edge. So this morning, it's not even a whisper, really. We're just barely, barely, barely getting into the doctrine of God. And so I decided to focus here on Exodus 3 and what we can learn about God 
from Exodus 3. And there's going to be sort of an umbrella idea, and then there's going to be six attributes of God that we're going to lay out as we go through it. And what is the umbrella idea? What is the key idea in the passage? The key idea is that our God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, okay? And as good Reformed folks, we love covenant. We love the word covenant. I'm going to say it like 100 times in this sermon, okay, just to get my quota in. We love the word covenant, covenant meal, covenant baptisms, covenant seals, covenant signs, all these sort of covenants. The reason we love it is because God is a covenant-keeping God. He makes covenants with people all the way from the very beginning, from Adam to Noah to Abraham to David, on and on. He makes these, makes these covenants with his people. And what is a covenant? A covenant is a particular type of relationship. Pastor Garner actually said it really well at the wedding last week. He said, love commits. That's what a covenant is. A covenant is a commitment. A covenant is a promise. A covenant is that you are in a particular type of relationship that there's going to be blessings and there's going to be curses, there's obligations, there's a commitment to one another. God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He commits to us. And that's what we see in this passage. The very very end of chapter 2, the very beginning of what I read, it says, so God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. He's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. So what does this look like in our passage? I'm going to lay out six specific attributes of God, and there's more. Okay, if I don't know how long this will be, but if I go long, just remember, I took some out. Okay? had a much longer list when I began, and I took some out. So there's six specific attributes of God that we find in this passage that I want to emphasize. First, he is personal. Okay, God is a personal God. He is not a force. Okay, all you Star Wars aficionados out there, God is not like the force. He's not like this, this sort of vague, ambiguous motion. He is a person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm not getting the Trinity today because Pastor Garner's going to preach on the Trinity on Trinity Sunday. But in the Trinity, you see these three persons, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. He is personal. He knows Moses by name. He knows the plight of the Israelites. He knows Aaron. We'll see later. He knows who Aaron is. He knows his family. He knows us by name. He knows our kids by name. He knows the kids that haven't even been born yet. He knows them by name. God is a covenant God, and therefore he is a personal God. He is close to us, intimate, if we can even use that without going awry. He is intimate. Listen to Psalm 139, a great picture of this personal nature of God. O Lord, you have searched me, and you have known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. There's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Since knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high. I cannot attain it. Okay? So this is not a God who is far off. This God is not aware of your situation. It's not a God who doesn't know you by name. He doesn't know your situation. He knows Israel's situation. He knows Moses' situation. He knows Aaron's situation. He knows your situation. He's a God who is close, not a God who is far off. He's, and we live in a very impersonal world. Um, we live in a very impersonal world. Where we are treated like numbers. We're treated like digits. In fact, your whole life is probably, to some company out there, you exist entirely as a number. That's all you are, your credit card number, some number someplace else. You exist entirely. They, they've never, they don't know what you look like. They have no idea what your face is, anything. That you're a number on a page. We're not like that to God. God knows all of us intimately closely, carefully, knows us by name. And of course, this culminates in Jesus Christ 
coming and becoming a man and coming to earth and being among people, knowing people face to face. Okay, and this will not change when we get to meet him in the last days. We go to heaven, the new heavens and the earth, you will be able to walk up and shake Jesus' hand and he will know your name. He'll go, oh yes, you are, and he'll call you by name. And you'll probably fall down on your feet and worship, but he knows you. God is a covenant-keeping God and therefore he is personal. He's close to us. Here in the passage, we see this intimate knowledge that God has of his people and his love for his people in this passage, all right? So first, he is personal. God is personal. We, he knows us. Secondly, we can know him. God reveals himself. Okay? In this passage, this is maybe one of the best, most important self-revelations of God in the Old Testament. In this passage, God comes as a burning bush, okay? but then he says this later on. God said to Moses, well, let's start in verse 13. Then Moses said, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is the word Yahweh. Okay, that is the word Yahweh introduced here. God says, this is who I am. I am the self-sufficient God. And the main point I want to make is he reveals himself to Moses. God does not hide himself. He's not watching us back here with binoculars spying on our life. You know, like the, like the government is, okay? He's not doing that, all right? He is close. He reveals himself to us, okay? And here in Moses, he reveals himself to Moses. A covenant-keeping God is a God who reveals himself to us. And why does he have to do this? Because we are creatures, okay? We are finite. He is not. He is infinite. We are bound in one place. You, can, you are in one spot right now. You're in your seat, okay? You may wish you were somewhere else, but you can't be two places at once. Every parent said that. Boy, I wish I could be two places at once. They told their kid, I can't be two places at once. Okay? Well, God is everywhere at all times. His whole being is everywhere at all times. Okay? Everywhere, everywhere, everywhere you can think of. The stars, the Milky Way, wherever. He fills the heavens and the earth. Okay? He fills the heavens and the earth. He is outside of time. We are inside of time. Okay? Our entire life is linear. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, January, February, March. 2023, 2024, 2025. That's how we think. God does not think that way. He's not linear because he's outside of time. Now, I don't know what that means. I'll be honest with you. I have no idea. Okay? I mean, I've heard explanations, and the explanations are just as baffling as anything. So I don't know what it means, but he's clearly not enclosed in time. So there's no way we could know God unless he reveals himself. We cannot understand God unless he opens up to us. And this is true even on a human level. Okay, if someone doesn't want you to know who they are, they can kind of close themselves off, and you can't know them. Okay? Well, if God didn't want you to know who he was, okay, he could do that. He could hide himself. He does not do that. He reveals himself. And really what we're saying here is God initiates. As the covenant-keeping God, God initiates. He comes to us. He comes to Noah. He comes to Abraham. He comes to Moses here. He comes to Joshua and the judges. He comes to David. He comes to Isaiah. And then, of course, ultimately, he comes in the form of Jesus Christ. He comes down. He initiates. He reveals himself to us. Jesus is the greatest revelation of God. You want to know what God looks like? What does Jesus say in John? He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What is God like? He is like Jesus. Okay? He is like Jesus. All right? So we, one of the great things about our God is that he shows himself to us. And we live in an age where knowledge is very malleable, okay? You might think you know something. You might think something. We've all been here, right? You might think you know something. You're sure something is true. You're absolutely sure something is true. And then 
found later, well, maybe it wasn't true. Maybe they really were lying to me. Maybe that really was false. Okay? So knowledge of things in our world, we have so much knowledge everywhere, but a lot of it you're not unsure about. Are we living in the matrix? <laughs> are they telling us things that, that are not true? Okay, well, this is not the case with God. The scriptures are absolutely true. Everything in here is true about who God is. You want to know who God is? Read the Bible. Okay? You want to understand God better? Read the Bible. You want to know what our covenant God is like? Read about Jesus. Okay? God reveals himself. So not only does God know us intimately and closely, but we can know God. He is not a God who is far off. He's God who has come near to us in the form of Jesus Christ. And obviously here in um, Exodus 3, he comes near to Moses and reveals himself to Moses. Okay, so he is personal. He reveals himself. Third, God knows all things. Okay, so this is different than just knowing us. We're talking about facts here. And this is called the omniscience. One of big, fat theological words you can throw around. The omniscience of God. He knows everything. Throughout this passage, God demonstrates knowledge that the average person would not have, okay? And this is true throughout the scriptures as well. He knows where Moses is at. He knows what's happening in Israel, I mean Egypt. He knows what's happening to the Israelites in Egypt. He knows what Pharaoh is going to do. At the very end of the passage, he says, you will plunder the Egyptians. He knows what's going to happen down the line, after the 10 plagues. After all that, he knows what's going to happen, okay? God cannot keep covenant with us if he does not know all things. He could not do it. And we call this an incommunicable attribute of God. So a brief little theology lesson here. There's attributes of God we can have, and there's attributes of God we cannot have. Okay? For example, God's wisdom, you can have. You can be wise like God. Not exactly like God, but you can have wisdom. You can be righteous like God. You cannot be omniscient. You never will be. Even when you're in heaven, new heavens and new earth, and you're there, and you've been there a long time, you will still not know everything. Okay? God knows everything. Let's walk through this a little bit, because I think... We didn't hear that. We're like, yeah, 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 God knows everything. It's kind of how we look at it. But let's talk about this for a minute. God knows everything that did happen in the past. Everything in the past, God knows. Every scrap of history, he knows. He knows what happened last week in your household that you don't know about. He knows what happened a month ago that you've forgotten. He knows what happened in 1590. He knows what happened in 850, 1000 BC. He knows every single thing that occurred. He knows where all the dead bodies are that no one knows about. He knows where all the ships have sunk that no one can find. He knows everything that has happened. Not just that, he knows why it happened. He knows what motivated a man to do a certain thing. You can read history books. People are always you know, um, speculating about the motives. Why did a guy do this? Well, God knows exactly why he did it. He knows exactly. God doesn't just know facts. He knows inside the man, okay, everything that occurred. So God knows everything that has happened. And history is immense, immense. Just the last month. Last year, think about your, the last year of your life and multiply it times 7 billion people or however many people we have on the earth right now. And God knows all of it. Nothing is hidden from him. God knows everything that is going on right now. Your knowledge is limited to what's in front of you. You don't have any idea what's happening at Domino's down the street. You don't have any idea. Your knowledge, my knowledge, is limited to what's in front of us. And even that is limited. I don't know what's happening in your mind. What's going on in your brain? You might be going, think about football. I think about, is it going to rain at the potluck? I think about, when is Pastor Garn going to preach again? Okay. What are you thinking? I have no idea what you're thinking about. Okay. I don't know. God knows everything that is happening right now all over the world. He knows what's going on in China. He knows what's going on in submarines underneath the ocean. He knows every single thing. He knows what's going on in your mind right now. He knows everything. All right. 
Not only that, of course, the next logical thing is he knows what has happened, what is happening, he knows what will happen. Okay? You don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. You think you know. You think you know. But there's always things that come up that you don't see, you don't understand. You think you know, but God knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows, what's, he knows where you're going to be. January 8th, 2024. He knows exactly where you're going to be and what you're going to be doing. Every single one of us, he knows that. Okay? So God knows what has, what is, what will. But not only that, I love, I love bringing this up because this is fascinating to me. In Matthew 11, Jesus says this. He says, if the wonders have been done in Sodom, it would still remain to this day. And that's a cool passage in a lot of ways. But for our purposes this morning, not only does God know what has happened, what is happening, what will happen, he knows what would have happened if something had changed. And we've all heard about the butterfly effect, you know. One little thing changes over here and everything changes down the line. God knows that. Jesus isn't guessing here. He's like, well, if I've been in Sodom, maybe they would, no, Jesus knows exactly. If Jesus had showed up in Sodom and done the works he, that he was doing there in Capernaum, if he showed up in Sodom, Sodom would still be there. So now does God know what will happen, he knows what would have happened if something had changed. And the point here is his knowledge is complete, far more complete than you can even fathom. <laughs> or I think we, we think about the omniscience of God and everything God knows, and maybe because it's so hard for us to grasp, we tend to push it aside. Don't do that. Think about that. Think about what God knows. As our covenant God, he knows all things, past, present, future, everything. Nothing is hidden. Nothing's in from. So that's the third one. He is all-knowing. But knowledge without power to act on that knowledge is worthless. And we've all been in situations where we could see something coming. Okay? I remember I was a pizza delivery driver for a while, and I drove this little white Dodge Neon that had no power steering, no power locks, no power doors, no heating, no air conditioning. It was fantastic for delivering pizza. But anyway, one day I was delivering pizza, and I see this kid coming down. He's supposed to stop, of course. This kid coming down, and what I was going to find out was his grandfather's Cadillac. Now, if you know a neon, think this. Your Cadillac, think this, okay? So the Cadillac's coming down, and I'm watching him, watching him, watching He's not stopping. He's not stopping. He's not stopping. And he doesn't stop, and there's nothing I can do. And he just T-bones me. Okay? We've all been in situations like that where we see this thing happening, and we have no power to stop. No power to stop. What do we do? We pray, right? Because there is someone who has the power to stop it, right? There is someone who has that power. God is not just all-knowing. He is also all-powerful. We call this the, the omnipotence of God, the almighty power of God. And we see this throughout this passage. God is not telling Moses what he hopes is going to happen. God is not making suggestions to Moses. God is telling Moses this is exactly what is going to occur. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to take you, and I'm going to send you down to Egypt, and you're going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, and Pharaoh's going to let my people go, and when he does, they're going to plunder the Egyptians. This is not a question mark in God's mind. It is exactly what is going to happen. If we were doing this, if we were trying to get our people out of Egypt, we would gather a large army, we would make all these preparations, all these plans, we'd get the best weapons, we'd plan, we'd strategize, get the best generals, we'd think for months about the route, What's the best way to attack? Uh, we've got some guys on the inside who can maybe give some false information. We do all this, and at the end, we'd say, well, I hope we win. Okay? I hope we win. God doesn't do any of that. He goes to an 80-year-old man on the back of the mountain and says, listen, I'm going to pull you out, and you're going to go without an army, without any weapons of any sort except for me. Okay? Uh, you're going to go, and you're going to take my people out of Egypt. It is not a question mark. God is all-powerful. God is mighty. 
strong to save. Think about the birth of Christ. We just had Christmas. Think about this. He, the prophecy said he had to be born in Bethlehem. You're watching this unfold. Mary's pregnant, but Mary and Joseph don't live in Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph don't live in Bethlehem. So how is Jesus going to get to Bethlehem? Well, all God does is have a Caesar, the most powerful man in the world, have him decide to do a census, not in three months, Mary was three months pregnant, not after the baby was born, but have him do a census right at the point of time where Joseph would have to go back to Bethlehem and Mary and, and Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And we can multiply that 100 times in the Bible. All these prophecies of Christ, all these things, all these pieces of the puzzle have to fit. How does that happen? Because God is all-powerful. Because there's no contingencies with God. There are no variables. There's nothing he didn't see coming. He understands it all and pushes it where he wants it to go. Okay, and the same thing with the life of Jesus. You know, he opens, he has power over storms, over beasts, over demons, over sickness, blind eyes, mute mouths, lame legs. And of course, ultimately, he has power over death. So God is all powerful. And we read these stories about God doing these things and we lose our awe. It should blow our minds that Jesus just talked to the storm and it stopped. Hey, I tell my kids, I remember reading this to the kids. I tell them, have you ever been able to do that? And go outside sometime when the storm's rolling in and the rain's coming, you know, change it. And of course they're like, no, of course not. And Jesus just boom, like that. Remember we could have, the nice Jesus would take, take us up 10, 15 degrees and bring sunshine, right? We can't do that. We cannot do that. And we read that story about Jesus and all these things that Jesus does, all these things that God does, and we lose our sense of awe because it becomes familiar to us. It's not familiar. It is wild that Jesus took demons out of a man, threw them in a pig, and put the pig over the cliff. That is a wild story, wild, about the power of Christ, okay? So our covenant-keeping God is personal. He reveals himself. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. And fifth, he is holy. He is holy, all right? This is a reference to his moral perfection. His moral perfection. He is unstained by any sin. He is morally majestic, far above us. Why is the place where Moses is at holy? Because God is there, why is that box behind a curtain in the temple holy? Holy of holies. Why? Because God is there. The presence of God is what makes it holy. Why is Jesus called the Holy One of God? The demons say, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Why? Because he is God. He is God. And it, you can't take one attribute of God and place it above the other attributes of God, okay? And people like to do this. You really can't do that. All the attributes of God come in one ball, okay? But if we're going to take one, the holy, holy, holiness of God might be at the top of the list. Okay, R.C. Sproul famously said, only is holy, holy, holy mentioned three times. Only is the word holy mentioned three times, and that's Isaiah 6, where Isaiah comes in and the seraphim are singing, holy, holy, holy. And we have that song, holy, holy, holy. And Hannah's song, 1 Samuel 2, she says, there is none holy like the Lord. No one is holy like God. Isaiah 57, 15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, whose name is holy. It's part of his character. I dwell in the high and holy place. So holiness is God's absolute moral purity. It is his greatness and his majesty, his set-apartness from us. It reminds us that he is not like us. He's not like us. He is the creator, without stain, without blemish. And what happens to Moses when he comes in contact with his holiness of God? What happens to Isaiah when he comes in contact with his holiness of God? Well, Moses, this is what happens to Moses. 
Moreover, God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Isaiah got the same thing. Isaiah shows up. He's transported up to the throne room of God. And what does Isaiah say? Woe is me. Woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among people of unclean lips. And the angel has to come and cleanse him because he is not fit for the presence of God. has to put that coal on his mouth, all right? And of course, this culminates in Jesus Christ, who is the holiest of all, the holy one. Acts, three times in the early parts of Acts, he's called the holy one. Jesus is called the holy one. He's the one that is separate part. Now, what's interesting, of course, about this is, in the Old Testament, the holy things were stained by sin. Okay? So if, if, if a sinner or something wicked went into the temple, it defiled the temple. On the New Testament, the holiness goes out. Jesus is the one spreading holiness, if I can use it that way. He spreads holiness. So in the Old Testament, the leper made you unclean. In the New Testament, Jesus makes the leper clean. Jesus can touch the leper because the holiness comes out from Christ, okay? So out from Christ. And Christ, of course, is the preeminent holy one. He never thought, said, or did anything that was sinful. And he always thought, said, and did exactly what was righteous, okay? Again, that's one of those things that we think about, but we don't think about enough. We don't think about enough, that idea. How many days, how many mornings have you gone through where you could honestly look back and go, I did no sin that morning? I mean, how many, honestly? Or just take a week. We'll span it out. Some of you are really good people. You know, maybe you get through a morning. Huh? Span it out a week. I mean, we sin all the time and thought, word, indeed. That's not a lie in the catechism. It's true. We do. Jesus never once, not a single time ever, felt the wrong thing, thought the wrong thing, said the wrong thing. Never did the wrong. Never one time did he do that. He is holy. He is righteous. And this is, of course, Jesus is a revelation of God. The revelation of God. Okay. So we have he is personal. He reveals himself. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is all-holy. He is all-holy. But all five of these attributes of God are not, do not sum up what's so important about this passage and who God is. Because if you just have those five attributes of God and you don't have this sixth one, all you get is terror. Okay? Can you imagine someone who knows everything about you and is not a good person? Think about that. Everything you've ever done from childhood until now, everything you've ever thought, they know it all, and they're not a good person. Okay? What the sixth attribute of God, and really the one that is, is in this passage so clearly seen, is he is a God of mercy. He's a God of mercy. Um, this entire passage is about God's mercy to his people. Him knowing everything about us is not a comfort if there's no mercy there. If God is just intent on destroying us, him knowing everything is not comforting. His holiness is not comforting if we don't have Jesus. His holiness is not comforting. It's terrifying if we don't have Jesus. And if you don't have Jesus, let me tell you, that's where you're at. Here's God's holiness, and here's you, and there is nothing between you and God's holiness. And that holiness will destroy you. He is a God of mercy. In this passage, we see his mercy to his people. Just hear that again. He heard their cry. He remembered his covenant. He looked upon the children of Israel and he acknowledged them. He's coming to rescue and save them. And the whole passage is filled with this. The whole story of the Exodus is filled with God's mercy, right? I mean, you think about the times Israel sinned. You think about the golden calf. You think about all the things Israel did. And God's mercy keeps showing up. It's a mercy that is undeserved, that cannot be earned, cannot be bought, and cannot be bargained for. God's mercy is free and undeserved. And this is really what makes him our covenant-keeping God, is this mercy that he pours out on us. Without this love, this kindness, this mercy, those other things only bring terror. 
And of course, this, again, I've kind of brought all these attributes down to Jesus. This one as well. Listen to what Paul says in Titus. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that's Jesus. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He saved us because of his mercy. All the attributes of God are not comforting unless you have this one, this mercy of God, this kindness of God. And remember, again, Paul in Romans 5, he says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person, or perhaps for a good person, one might dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's just saying, while we were still wicked, God had mercy on us. God had mercy on us. The Bible repeatedly says God is slow to anger and great in mercy. Imagine if those were reversed. Imagine if he was quick to anger and slow to mercy. Where would we be? Where would Israel be if God was quick to anger and slow to mercy? Where would we all be if God was quick to anger and slow to mercy? So the center of this covenant-keeping God after the personalness of it, his revelation is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-holy. At the center of it is this merciful, kind, faithful God who keeps covenant with us, who loves us and cares for us and sent his son to die for us. That's at the center of it. Without that, we are undone. We're like Isaiah. We're undone. Let me end with just a couple of things here, two things I would encourage you to do. First, cultivate an awe of God. Cultivate an awe of God. Uh, these attributes, as I study them, I realized it's just so easy to, to take these for granted, to not think about them. Many of you are starting new Bible reading plans. You read Genesis 1 this week, maybe. You read Genesis 1. And you just, you're like, oh, yeah, God made the world. No, 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 God did not make the world. God spoke, and there was a moon. God spoke, and men existed. He took a rib out of a man and made a woman. Okay? This stuff, you should read that and be like, whoa. <laughs> what's going on here, you know? And that's how it should be. And I, those of us who've been in the church, I've been in the church for my whole life, and we can read these passages, read about Jesus calming the storm, read about God making the world, and we can lose this awe and wonder at who God is. Cultivate that. And the way you cultivate it is you study it. You study God. Who is this God? What is going on in Isaiah 6? What is going on in Exodus 3? What is going on in Genesis 1 and 2? Who is this God that we serve? And the deeper you get, the more you worship. Okay? The more you understand God, the more you fall down and the more you worship. And the second thing I would encourage you with this morning is just trust him. Just trust him. He is a good covenant-keeping God. He knows you. He knows your kids. He knows your family. He knows your situation, and he loves you. He sent Jesus to die for you. His blood was spilled so you might have communion with him. You can trust him with everything. You can trust him with your worries. You can trust him with your pain. You can trust him with your sickness. You can trust him with your everlasting life. You can trust him with everything. We, I know we know that. We all know that. But it's harder to do than we think. A lot of times we let those worries eat us up. Don't let the worries eat you up. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. This is our covenant-keeping God. This is who we serve. This is what we believe about God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word to us. Uh, truly, we do not understand you as we ought. You have given us a great revelation of who you are in the scriptures and in Jesus Christ specifically. And yet so often our eyes glaze over when we read these things. We pray that you would awaken with this in us a greater sense of awe 
and wonder and fear at who you are. Help us to delight in your character. Help our kids to delight in your character. Help us to show our children how great a God you are. We ask all this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.